You're listening to a sermon from Oak Hill Fellowship Church, located in Strasburg, Pennsylvania. You can learn more about us by visiting oakhillfellowship.com or finding us on social media. Now grab a Bible, a notebook, and get ready to be spiritually enriched by the Word of God. You can open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. And as you are turning there, uh, why don't we go ahead and take a look at this video here. Uh, It's not going to have any sound, but I'll just explain to you what is going on. Um, So these children are being offered uh, this chocolate chip. However, if they wait, these are pretty young kids, right? So if they wait for five minutes, imagine what five minutes feels like to them in their life. It's like a quarter of their life or something like that. Uh, If they wait for five minutes and don't eat the chocolate chip, they can have what is in the box, and so I'm just going to talk for a little bit as you watch them try to make this decision. Uh, but have you ever been faced with a, a bit of a choice like this one? Uh, have you ever been faced with a choice where there's some uh, temporary satisfaction that's being offered, something that makes your life a little bit better, uh, but it's nothing, nothing compared to what God has offered for you as His child? Maybe this was a bad idea. You guys are going to be totally distracted by this, right? <laughs> but, but, but maybe you've received a choice like the chocolate chip where you're, you're, you're tempted to maybe scroll Instagram for 15 minutes rather than spending time in prayer with your Heavenly Father. Uh, maybe it's a choice to pursue a relationship that's not going to lead you toward Christ, but in the moment, that relationship is going to make you feel very, very good, at least for a little while, right? Maybe it's a choice to to make some quick cash, but in order to do it, you you need to uh, act in a way that's not Christ-like. You you have to ignore some of God's priorities for you if you're going to have this momentary pleasure of making that money. Uh, Maybe you've encountered a command where obedience to God would cost you something. Uh, Maybe it would cost you a relationship. Maybe it would cost you money or time or or treasure. And not obeying God would be a lot more enjoyable in a moment than waiting for the final reward. So a choice to obey like that can be really difficult. Like you're watching this play out in front of you right now, right? Like it can be really, really difficult. This guy just failed on that one, right? He made the wrong choice and he's realizing it too. I I love that. But but can we all agree, like obedience can be hard sometimes, right? Like raise your hand if obedience ever comes difficult, right? So look around the room. You're totally in good company if it ever comes difficult for you and... um, That's probably the experience of the average follower of Jesus Christ weekly, if not daily. That that we have to take seriously the commands of God and find them hard to obey. And so the natural follow-up question then is, what do you do when that happens? Like like some of us in that moment, we won't obey at all, like, like like these kids. Like if obedience is at all costly, we just pretend like God never said it. We just act like, like God never asks anything of His children, that, that a loving God would never put expectations on His children that would make them temporarily unhappy. But I don't think that's the true of the majority of our experience as followers of Jesus Christ. I don't believe that of you, mostly. Uh, a lot of times in those moments, I think we choose to obey, at least to a degree, but, but we don't really believe that it's a great choice. We sort of do it through gritted teeth, because... 
Maybe we feel guilty or shameful. And we know that it's our duty and we have to get it done. And so therefore we obey God. We do it because we think of God as someone maybe mean, who, who, who we don't want to get on His bad side. And so that's why we're going to obey Him. But what if, what if there was a stronger motivation toward obedience than that? What if God is setting before us a greater hope of a greater joy that will motivate us to everyday obedience? What if we allowed that hope to change our lives? That's our goal in this First Peter series that we're going through. We're letting the hope of eternity change our lives on earth. And we've said that hope is the confident expectation of eternal joy. And today Peter is going to show us how that hope can motivate our obedience even when the standard of obedience seems impossible. Even when the cost of obedience seems high. Even when obedience would go against everything that our society would value. Even when the temptations towards earthly pleasures are strong. Like these kids. So do you want to know what these kids did? you want to know what these kids did? It's coming up really soon here. (laughs) Right now they're just goofing off. Here it is. 32 out of 36 young children did not eat the chocolate chip. Is, is hope a strong enough motivation to sustain our obedience? Is hope a strong enough sustain, motivation? Or do we need some other form of guilt and shame and self-punishment and self-fortification? Hope of a greater joy is a powerful motivation. So look at these kids' faces, right? <laughs> the size of that cupcake is like the size of their heads, right? Hope of a greater joy is a powerful motivation. And so here's the big idea for today. Let's go to the next slide. Now that you are thoroughly distracted. <laughs> Let hope motivate holy obedience. That's the big idea for today. Let hope motivate holy obedience. Look down in your Bibles with me at 1 Peter chapter 1. We're going to begin in verse 13. Peter writes, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on Him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in these last times for the sake of you 
who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Let hope motivate holy obedience. Do you see it there in the text? Now this can honestly be a challenging section to read and to study because there's just so much there. Like the sentences are just so dense and complex. And so I have to admit, sometimes the first time that I read through a section like this, even earlier this week, I'm like, what? Like, like I didn't get how that all worked together. Like, I was just a little bit slow on it. Can anybody else relate to that? Like, you just, your eyes kind of glaze over and you're just like, I don't know. Let's, let's, let's take that again, please. Um, and so, uh, part of what I want to do as I preach through First Peter is to provide you with some good tools so that when you're reading a section of Scripture like this, you can actually go to it and take something away from it. Like, you don't walk away and you're just like, well, I read it. I guess that's something. Like, I don't really know what I was supposed to get out of all that, but I guess it meant something, and I guess it was something good because it was God's Word, but no, no, no. God is speaking to us through His Word. And He wants us to understand what He's saying. He's not hiding it from us. He, he, he doesn't want us to just read some stuff so that we can check it off a list. He wants us to encounter Him through what He has revealed. And it doesn't take a professional to do that. Believe me, I'm not a professional. And so, as we go through the text today, I, I want to show you how these complex sentences work together so that the next time that you're reading on your own, you can discover what God is calling you today. And the first principle of Bible study that I want to show you as we get into this today uh, is actually one that we've talked about many times before, and you should know this, the, uh, this question that we ask uh, often here at Oak Hill, if you're a part of Oak Hill for any amount of time, uh, we get to the first word and it says, therefore, right? And so what's the question that we ask when we see the word therefore? Come on, let's go. What's the therefore, therefore? Right, exactly. What's the therefore, therefore? And the therefore is almost always pointing us back to the verses that are before, right? Like, like sometimes it's going to be pointing us to what's next, but, but almost always it's pointing us back to the verses before. It's like the author is building a structure. He's building a building, but he's, he's building it upon the foundation of what he has just laid. And, and so therefore is calling us back to the verses that we just so happened to study last week. Like this is one of the great benefits of studying the Bible verse by verse, passage by passage, week after week, is that like if you were here with us last week, you would have just got a whole foundation laid for what you're about to hear this week. And if you aren't, you're going to be able to keep up, don't worry, but come back next week because we'll build on what we're learning today, right? And, and so um, God has, is pointing us back to what Peter has just written about their living hope in verses 3 to 12. Last week we looked at that incredible passage where Peter talks about this hope that is awaiting born-again believers. God has made them His children and they belong to Him and they belong with Him in heaven. But, but the whole theme of this book is that they're, they belong in heaven but they're still living with Him here on earth. And so they're living as exiles or strangers, aliens on the earth. And so they go through all of these various trials that come along with living their lives in a fallen world, and Peter wants them to have 
hope. We said last week, based on verses 3 to 12, uh, when you can't see God in the details, find hope in His big picture. When you can't see God at work in the details of your life and you're just confused about what He's doing, find hope in His big picture. And so Peter calls the the churches to, to praise God because He's preserving their future. Because Jesus rose from the dead, they have been born again through faith. They have a living hope. They have an inheritance that is kept in heaven for them. God is powerfully guarding them until the day when they can receive it. And then Peter commends them for rejoicing in God's work in the present circumstance. They they rejoice because God is producing this precious faith in the midst of their trials. And then finally, Peter uses the example of the prophets who who also experienced life in exile. And he uses that to encourage them to seek God because God is unfolding a beautiful story of redemption. And they're getting to see that play out through Jesus Christ and His work in their churches. And so therefore, because of all of that, because of a living hope in the future and precious faith in the present and a big picture view of what God has done in the past. Therefore, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The hope of verses 3 to 12 is the foundation of everything that we are about to read today. Let hope motivate Holy obedience. You see it now? It's all wrapped up in that word, therefore. So today we want to look at three obedient responses to this hope that we have been given. Uh, First of all, be hopeful by thinking clearly about future salvation. Be hopeful by thinking clearly about future salvation salvation. Now like I said, uh, passages like this can be tricky because the the sentences can be complex. They they require you to slow down and to really think about what God is saying through this author. And thankfully, thankfully we have some really good translations that we can lean on to help us with this. And, And it might help you if you're reading in your personal Bible study to read like two or three translations uh, to get a feel for for what's different in them, what's the same in them, uh, but at least, at the very least, find a good literal translation. So uh, the New American Standard Bible is is a good version. Uh, we use the English Standard Version. It's a very literal translation here at Oak Hill. Uh, the, the New King James Version can be pretty good. And uh, so personally, I think that the ESV does the best job with the verses that we're studying today because what I want you to do in a sentence like this Here's a little skill that we're going to learn, is to find the command. Okay, so we're going to play a game called Find the Command. Ready? I, I, I was doing this actually with my six-year-old the other day. Uh, I, I read a passage of scripture, I think it was our fighter verse, right? And I said, let's play Find the Command. I want you to yell out command when you hear a command. And so I just read it very slowly for him, and, and guess what? He could do it. Like, he's like, I recognize that, that's a command. It, it's, it's somebody telling me what to do. And so if a six-year-old can do this, I'm pretty sure you can too. You're going to be okay. And so we come to a sentence like verse 13, and we want to look for the command, okay? So here we go. Therefore, we haven't gotten there yet. 
Preparing your minds for action. Not quite. Not quite. It's not the heart. It's not telling you what to do, right? In your translation, in the New American Standard, it might, it might sound like a command, right? But actually, it's not the heart of the command. Okay, so in the ESV, this is why I said the ESV is a little bit easier for this. Preparing your minds for action. So that's something that you're doing while you're going to obey the command. Preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. Still not. Still not. Set your hope fully. Ding, 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 ding. Good job. You, you win the game. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. There's the command. Set your hope. So Peter wants us to set our hope. Now we have to still figure out what that means uh, but and how all those other words relate to it. We're not just throwing them all out, uh, but we can kind of clear away everything else and we can read, therefore, set your hope. The goal is that we, our hope would be set, it would be fixed. The activity of setting our hope is the response to all that was in verses 3 to 12. It's our response to God causing us to be born again to a living hope. And so here's what this means. We have been given a hope, but now there's a response to that that we actually need to set our hope. We've been given a hope, but we need to set our hope. We need to make the obedient choice to be hopeful. Hope is the foundation for all other forms of obedience. And Peter reminds us again what we're hoping for. He says, set your hope fully. Okay, so, so not a little bit of hope mixed with a lot of doubt. Uh, not a little bit of hope that's distracted by a bunch of other things or, or, or you know, mixed with other, other things that we would hope for. No, no. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So again, he's talking about that future day of salvation, that day when Jesus returns and our faith is made sight and we receive all of the inheritance that he wants to give us. Set your hope Fully on that day and that gift of final salvation. Be hopeful that Jesus is going to return and God is going to prom- deliver on His promise. And so how do we do that? How, how do we do that when, when so many things in this life would seem to shoot holes in our hope? How do we do that when obedience to God's commands is hard, even obedience to this command? can be hard. You see, sometimes what makes obedience hard is that there's so many different things that are grasping for our attention. There are so many things that are promising to be a source of hope to us. A job, maybe a new job. A relationship, money, status, attention. A certain activity that then becomes our identity. All of those things promise to be a source of hope to us and they prove to be a weak foundation for our hope. There are so many things that are luring our attention away from Christ and our future salvation. And this is especially true of what we were talking about when it comes to what we were talking about last week. That there's these details and these complexities to our trials in our lives on earth. And they cause confusion about what God is doing. And so Peter 
calls us to set our hope fully on God's grace that will be fully experienced when He returns. And He gives us two activities that are the way that we set our hope. So these are the two phrases that we jumped over. Now that we know what the command is, now we can go back and see how the other parts relate to that command. And so He gives us two activities that are a part of setting our hope. This is why they aren't the heart of the command. These are the ways that the command is obeyed. Preparing your mind for action and being sober-minded. So in order to be hopeful, uh, we need to first prepare our minds for action. The words are literally, uh, girding up the loins of your mind. Everybody say, that's weird. That's weird, right? Like, yeah, that's just a weird other culture sort of phrase, right? And so, but we talked about this when we studied the book of Luke, that, that uh, the clothes that people would wear uh, were these long tunics, okay? So there's a picture up here, uh, the guy on the right, he's got his long tunic on, that's the fashion statement of the day, and it's all cool until you have to get to work, right? And, and trying to be a farmer, or trying to be a soldier, and going out into in, in battle, like that's going to get in the way. Your dress isn't going to work there, big guy. And, and so, you've got to gird up your loins, and to gird up your loins means that you take all of that excess fabric and you, there's a certain way that you tie it and you kind of tuck it into the belt and you, and, you, and you get it all situated just properly so that your legs can move and you can get to work, get to action. And so here, Peter says, gird up the loins of your mind. Remove the excess thoughts and distractions that get in the way of your hope. Remove all of those things that are trying to get your attention, trying to be a source of hope to you. Get rid of it all. And be watchful and ready for Christ's return. That's the first step of setting your hope fully on future grace. Clear out the distractions. The second step to setting your hope is being sober-minded. Being sober-minded. So what does that make you think of, that word sober? Alcohol, right? Or, or drugs of some kind. Like, the opposite of being sober is being inebriated. It means that you're unable to think clearly. You're unable to think quickly or make clear-minded decisions and stay focused. Only here, it's not just referring to being drunk with alcohol, although that could be included. That, would, that could get in the way of you being sober-minded. But, but here, uh, Peter wants us to think clear thoughts about the salvation and hope that we have in Jesus. And so don't let anything cloud your judgment about your true source of hope. Get away all of the distractions and think clearly. So, you know how people then make all sorts of crazy concoctions if they have like a drunk friend or something like this? I've never done it. I saw it on TV. But anyway, um, like, like they'll make all sorts of crazy concoctions saying, this will sober you up real quickly, right? Like, like pickle juice or I don't know what, you know, coffee, whatever it is. Like this will sober you up real quickly. Setting your mind on the gospel hope is the best and fastest way to sober you up. It is the best and fastest way to produce sober-minded thinking when you are inebriated with the cares of this world. Setting your mind on gospel hope is the best and fastest way to sober you up. 
And so by preparing our minds for action and being sober-minded, we are to set our hope fully on the grace that will be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Be hopeful by thinking clearly about future salvation. Now, I want you to think about two implications of this command. Uh, Set your hope before we get to an application. Uh, First of all, if we are commanded in this verse to set our hope or to be hopeful, then to hope is actually part of our obedience, right? Let me say it a different way. Say it negatively. To refuse to hope is to disobey God. That'll poke you in the eye. Now now listen, if you're struggling through a trial and you're having a difficult time finding hope, I don't say that to add insult to injury. I don't say that to add some extra burden upon your back. I say that because I want you to feel permission and even an urgency to pursue hope. And I want you to fight for hope above all else. If you focus on hope in your trial, obedience will come. If you get focused on hope, the obedience is going to follow. God's not taking you through a trial so that you would become hopeless. He's taking you through a trial so that you would be hopeful for the right thing. God's not taking you through a trial so that you would become hopeless. He's taking you through a trial so that you would become hopeful for the right thing. And He wants to meet you in that place and He wants you to show you that hope only can come from Him. But you have to fight for that experience of hope. You have to be, prepare your mind for action. You have to get rid of all of the false sources of hope that would keep you from setting your hope fully on Christ. You have to be sober-minded, clear-headed in your thinking through dwelling on the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And then you will be able to set your hope. And to refuse to do that, is to, to refuse to hope, is to disobey God. I think we sometimes act like hopelessness is kind of a badge of honor that demonstrates how spiritual we are in our suffering. Like if I just kind of become as hopeless and as downtrodden as possible about the sin in the world and about the sin in my life, then God is going to be somehow pleased with how much I hate sin. And He's going to be somehow impressed with how much I'm willing to suffer for Him and make myself miserable for Him. And that's going to somehow produce in me more righteousness and more obedience. And it's going to produce that same thing in the people around me. Believe me, I've thought that way myself. But that's not the way that the Gospel works. Obedience that pleases God comes through the hope of God's grace in salvation. And so being hopeful is part of our obedience. If we refuse to hope, we are being disobedient. And the second implication of this command then, set your hope, is this. You are not obeying God if your obedience is not rooted in the hope of God. You are not obeying God if your obedience is not rooted in the hope of God. And so I could try to do all of the righteous things that God tells me to do in the Bible. I could try to obey all of His commandments. I could try to be a good, moral person. But if my hope is not set fully 
and I mean fully, on the grace that Jesus is bringing when He returns, then any attempt at obedience is misguided and short of God's command. Gospel hope must be the foundation of all other obedience in my life as a Christian. If you are finding it hard to obey God, maybe it's because you're going through an exceptionally hard trial. Maybe it's because you've lived with a certain sin pattern for so long. Maybe it's because you've just kind of lost your zeal for the Lord. If you are finding it hard to obey God, you have to start here. Be hopeful by thinking clearly about future salvation. Now throughout this sermon, I also want to give you some very practical, sober-minded questions to ask yourself in the moment of a choice to obey God. Right? We're called to prepare our minds for action. We're called to be able to think clearly about the choices that we're making. And so, so here's some questions that you can memorize even so that when you're faced with that moment-by-moment moment choice to obey God, your mind is prepared for action. You're ready to think clearly. And so here's the sober-minded question number one. Uh, am I hoping in a temporary salvation or Christ's eternal salvation? Am I hoping in a temporary salvation or Christ's eternal salvation? A focus on your temporary situation and the temporary things that are going to save you from it is going to lead to disobeying God every time. Okay, so parents, here's how this works. You've had a hard day and the kids are driving you nuts because they just keep fighting with each other, they just keep disobeying every word that you say, and so... The temporary salvation that you could hope in is if I just scream at them and send them to their rooms immediately, I will have some peace and quiet, theoretically. Because that doesn't always work either, right? But that temporary salvation will ultimately not bring about the eternal joy that God wants for you as you reflect Him to your children. And if in the moment you ask yourself a question like this, okay, I know that I, I, I want immediate peace and quiet, but am I hoping in a temporary salvation or an eternal salvation? Then God can draw you to sober-minded thinking and you can take the long view, realizing that Jesus is using their disobedience as a trial to produce precious faith in you, and He has a lasting and abiding hope for you, and you can share that hope with your children. If you're feeling pulled toward the temporary pleasure of lust, different example, and you think, it's just going to feel good and happy for a little while if I just indulge this lust. I just really need some momentary pleasure. I've had a rough day, whatever it is you are on the fast track to disobeying God. You're seeking a momentary Savior. But if in the moment you're prepared in your mind and you can think clearly on your future salvation, you're going to know that the fleeting pleasures of lust are no match for the grace that is going to be revealed to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. They just don't hold up. And so be hopeful by thinking clearly about your future salvation. 
Hope is the motivation for holy obedience. That leads us to our second obedient response to hope. Uh, be set apart by reflecting your Father's holy passions. Be set apart by reflecting your Father's holy passions. Okay, so let's, let's uh, practice our Bible study skill that we learned. Again, let's play Find the Command again. Okay? So verse 14, taking a look at verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Okay, so that's sort of like a command, uh, but it's a negative contrast. So, so it's setting up the command that's about to come, uh, but the heart of the command is still coming. He says, but as he who called you is holy, you also, here's the command, be holy in all your conduct. Do you hear how that's like just right at you? You, be holy in all your conduct. That's the command. Be holy in all your conduct. And I, I, I go through that and I'm like, can I play that game again? Like, can I find a different command, please? <laughs> because that one seems really, really difficult. That, that, that's quite a doozy. Like, be holy in all your conduct. So let's just get a definition for holy. Holy is to be set apart to be pure, to be clean, to be untainted by sin, to, be, to accurately display the beauty of God's glory. Be set apart from all your sin in all your conduct. So, so this isn't a positional holiness that we're talking about. Uh, we, we're made holy at the point of salvation in Christ. We're washed clean from all our sins. But this isn't what that's talking about. This is, this is practical holiness in all our conduct. Set apart in all of the choices that we make, all of the obedience that we would have toward God. And so if that isn't overwhelming enough, Peter just kind of adds the standard for holy conduct that we are to live up to. So the standard that he gives isn't like, he doesn't give like, be holy like the Apostle Paul is holy. Or today, like, be holy like Mother Teresa is ho- was holy. Or be holy like Martin Luther King Jr. was holy. No, no, no. The, the standard that he gives for holy conduct is be holy as he who called you is holy. The standard for holy conduct is the holy God of the universe, the one around whose throne the angels cover their faces and cry out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with His glory, like we sang about today. He's the one who never sins, has never sinned, will never sin. He is the standard of holiness. And so he even quotes the book of Leviticus to just kind of to put icing on the cake, he says, Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So this is a standard that Israel has been trying to achieve for thousands of years and failed time and time again. They were called to reflect the holiness of God and to represent His holiness to the rest of the world, and they failed. And the call to holy living has not changed and not diminished since that time. He's upholding what God called His people to do in the law. God still wants His people to look completely different than anything else in this world. 
Because He is completely different and better than anything else in this world. And so in every culture, the people of God are called to be a counterculture. They're called to look different. We, we have... We should have a different character. We should have different objectives. We should have different motivations, different priorities. Our lives should look altogether different and more beautiful than anything else in this world. That's what it means to be called to be holy as God is holy. And so this doesn't come through like changing your clothes and and separating yourself out like a like a sect somewhere. No, no, no. This comes through pursuing God Himself. We don't have this in us. This type of obedience is hard. In fact, it's downright impossible. Because if you're anything like me, you have all sorts of desires that compete with God's desires in your life. And so if the standard is a perfectly holy God, can we just acknowledge that we have a whole lot more obeying and growth to do in holiness, right? So you're feeling like this command is maybe just a little hopeless? As it stands on its own? Yeah. Because if we read the commands without their context, they are hopeless. If we just straight up read the commands and say, alright, I'm going to go do it, it's hopeless. So here's a little another, uh, a, a, another study skill that I want to introduce to you. It's built on the one that we just learned. Look for the command. It's called looking for the imperatives and the indicatives. And now I just lost all of you, right? Like, I don't like grammar, imperatives, indicatives. What in the world are you talking about, Pastor Ben? Okay. Let's break it down. It's on the screen. It's in your notes, okay? The imperative is the command, okay? What you need to do. It's what God is telling you to do. You look for that, right? The indicative is a statement of fact. It's what God has done that is already true. Okay? And so here's a little formula. If you don't like the imperative, indicative word, just forget it. Just, just look at what's in the parentheses, right? But imperatives, what we must do, minus indicatives, what God has done, equals... Hopeless impossibility. If we go after what we must do without first recognizing what God has done, it is a hopeless impossibility. Okay? So we have to study our Bibles this way because so many people study their Bibles the wrong way. So many people just go after what's the command? Let me do it. Let me check it off the list so that I can say that I'm holy. But there's another formula that we have to get. The imperatives, what we must do, plus the indicatives, what God has done, equals hopeful obedience. Hopeful obedience. That's what God wants to produce in us. You see the difference there? Like when we can only move forward in obedience to God's commands when we take hold of the work that He's already done. So we've got to learn to look around in the context and see what is this command grounded upon? What is true? And so what has God done that makes us respond in hopeful obedience to this command to be holy as He is holy? And we find a phrase that reveals 
that truth at the beginning of the verse. Peter says, as obedient children. Don't ever run away with the command without looking at that. As obedient children. There's a new identity that empowers us to be set apart in our conduct. Like, doesn't that little phrase just change the whole feel of the command? As obedient children. The reason that God gives this command is because He doesn't want His children drinking from the cesspool of sin when they can drink from the fountain of His holiness. And His identity is stated as a fact. It's something that's already true for those who are receiving the command. So we don't become His children by being holy. We become holy by being His children. So my oldest son Levi and I were talking about this this week. Um, He is so methodical. He is so uh, process oriented. He loves routine. He loves to know what's coming in his day. And I looked at him and I said, "Uh, your apple did not fall far from my tree. And he just looked at me like, what are you talking about, Dad? Because he's seven. And... um, well, he's almost seven. And, and so I, I had to explain to him what that meant, uh, that there are elements of his personality and his character that he totally came by honestly. Like he just totally inherited it in his, in his DNA, in his genetic makeup. Like he has a strong bent in that direction. But it's also something that I believe that he's learned through imitation. He's watched me plan. He's watched me be methodical. And he's imitated that. And so the nature that he inherited as my child shows up in his conduct and in his imitation. And so think about this. Uh, How did we become God's children? Well, Peter said it in verse 3. That the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ caused us to be born again to a living hope. So at the moment of salvation, God takes a dead sinner and He breathes new life into them and He causes them to be born again. He makes people His children. He initiates salvation in their lives. And so Peter says there in verse 15 that God is the one who called us to be His children. Last week we said that that in that moment a person is born again spiritually. They, They receive life like they've never known it before. They receive a new identity. They receive a new nature. The the new nature is all of the characteristics of a holy God. In in fact, it comes through the Holy Spirit. God Himself taking up residence in us, leading us, guiding us through the choices of our lives. And so there's now a draw toward holiness and holy conduct because we have a new nature. And by imitation of our Father... We want to and we can be holy. As God's children, if we're truly born again to a living hope, the apple will not fall far from the tree. And yet in this life, we we know that holiness is not always our experience. As long as we're in this body, we have a new nature, but we also have a sin nature. The Bible sometimes calls it the old self and says that we need to continually put it to death. Here in verse 14, Peter calls it the passions of our former ignorance. It's all the desires that we have that are not shaped by knowing God as our Father. 
Before we know God as our Father, we're ignorant of Him. We're, we're ignorant of His holiness. We're ignorant of His commands. We're ignorant of His power. And that's all that we know apart from God. And so, so people who don't know God just let their passions rule the day. They just follow along with everything that they know and, and everything that they don't know. Their lives are only shaped by what feels right in the moment. But as children of the Holy Father, we have a new nature and a knowledge of God's desires. And so we need to not be shaped by the, all those passions that once led us, even though they're still there, even though they're still sometimes right in our face and they make it hard to obey. We need to not be shaped by the passions of our former ignorance. We must be shaped by the passions and desires of our Holy Father. We need to reject our former passions for God's passions. And so how can we identify that like in the moment? Here's sober-minded question number two. Could I see my Heavenly Father participating in the thing that I want to participate in right now? Could I see my Heavenly Father participating in the thing that I want to participate in right now? That will sober you up real quick, right? Like, would the holy God of the universe be willing to think the thought that I'm thinking right now for Himself? Would He take part in the activity that I want to take part in? Would He say the words that are on the tip of my tongue? And when we ask ourselves those questions, we will immediately see the difference between God's nature that He has given to us through being born again and the sin nature that we used to walk according to. And those who are born again will be drawn to be holy as our Father is holy. But we have to see that we have this new nature. We have the power within us. God has given it to us. It's His nature. J.I. Packer wrote this, If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his Father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. If we are born again, then it means that God is our Holy Father and we have a holy nature and a holy calling to obey. And as obedient children, we also understand that our Father is the impartial judge. Peter continues in verse 17, he says, If you call on Him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. So so here's the third obedient response to hope. Uh, Be reverent, considering the high cost paid for your sin. Be reverent by considering the high cost paid for your sin. Let's play Find the Command one more time. What's the command in verse 17? Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Fear is the desire to relate properly to the fear source. It's recognizing the holiness of God and understanding how He judges sin. It's revering God. It's honoring God in His holiness. And here, this is a command given to believers. Fear God. 
Peter's assuming that his readers know God as Father and they pray to Him as Father and they should also know that God judges the deeds of men without partiality. So they don't get a pass on sin just because their dad is the judge. If there was a judge in our own court system and his son was brought before this bench and his son clearly did something wrong, something that he deserves like the death penalty for, it would be a great miscarriage of justice for that judge to declare his son not guilty without any discipline at all, without anybody paying the price for that sin. That would not be a just judge. And that is not what God does. God our Father is also the impartial judge. And so here's the bottom line. Uh, Sin is costly. God hates it. Every time. God hates what sin does to His creation. He hates the destruction that it causes. He hates the deception that says that human ideas are better than God's ideas. He hates the way that it detracts from His glory in the lives of His children. He hates it. And so God judges sin impartially. For those who reject God and His salvation through Jesus Christ, the cost of sin is ultimately spiritual death. Eternal conscious torment separated from the presence of God forever. The penalty for sin is a death penalty like no other. And even for those who call upon God as Father, He still has to judge sin. Because sin is costly. It wreaks havoc in our lives and it hurts the people around us. And so He disciplines us as His children. Sometimes He will put controlled, intentional pain in our lives to drive us away from what is wrong and destructive and toward what is good and beautiful. Hebrews 12 says, It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. And so knowing that our loving Heavenly Father will discipline our sin is part of what conducting ourselves with fear looks like. But I believe that it's even more than that in this verse. Because God does not deliver the full cost of sin to His children. His children are not under His wrath. They're not under His condemnation. And so how does God give hope to His children while still impartially judging and paying the high cost of sin? Look at verse 18. Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Here's the knowledge that inspires that fear. Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So the thing that strikes fear into the believer's heart is not the fear of condemnation, it's knowing the high cost that Christ paid for their sin and the fear of trampling over that. That's what causes them to take sin seriously and revere the holiness of God. So we talked about this already, that that before we became children of God, we were defined by our passions and our former ignorance. And here Peter says that, that they were in their futile ways that were passed down from generation to generation. 
So the apple didn't fall far from the tree of our earthly forefathers. We all sin, and that sin comes from our forefathers, and it is absolutely enslaving. We couldn't escape it, and we couldn't escape the judgment of it either. And so God had to judge that sin. And He didn't just merely let us off the hook and say, Go, you're free. No, He paid the ransom price Himself. Not with perishable things such as silver or gold, not with earthly lambs that were gonna that, that weren't the perfect sacrifice. No, he sent his son Jesus to spill his blood and take the the price of our sin. The death of Jesus is the cost of sin. And so just imagine him there hanging on a cross, back beaten, crown of thorns pressed down, nails through His hands and feet, suffering under the weight of His own body, crying out in agony, My God, my God, why have You forsaken Me? That physical reality is the picture of what our sins deserve for all of eternity. And when we consider what it costs for us to be called the children of God, that should send shivers of reverent fear up our spines. I want you to know that God did not do that reluctantly. And the fear does not come from thinking that God is somehow bitter about what He had to put His Son through. Verse 20 says that Jesus was foreknown before the foundation of the world. So this was God's plan all along to send the eternal Son to die for sin. But He was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through Him are believers in God who raised Him from the dead and gave Him glory so that your faith your hope are in God. God the Father sent His Son to pay for your sin. And He made Him known so that you could see the high cost of your sin and turn from it and place your faith and your hope in Him. And sometimes we can be, obedience can be hard because we forget what sin costs. We say it so often that Jesus died on the cross for our sin, but we forget the depth of what that means. But here's the reality. Every sin that you and I commit is a sin that Jesus went to the cross to die for. And So here's the sober-minded question for today that you need to be prepared to ask. The last one. Am I choosing a sin for which Jesus had to die to save me? Am I choosing a sin for which Jesus had to die to save me? And if you learn to ask that question in faith, you're going to run from sin. It's the hopeful way to find reverent, holy obedience. He's already saved you. Don't trample on that grace. So are you ready to obey God? Is your mind prepared for action? Are you thinking clearly about Christ's future salvation with hope? Is your hope in a temporary salvation or an earthly sal- or an eternal salvation? Are you set apart by reflecting your Father's holy passions? Could you see your Heavenly Father participating in the things that you want to go about participating in this week? 
Are you reverent at the high cost that was paid for your sin? Are you choosing sin for which Christ had to die to save you? I'd I'd urge you, memorize those three questions and in the moment of a choice of obedience, choose to allow hope to fuel reverent obedience. Let's pray. Father, we ask for your guidance in our lives towards your holiness. Father, your, the hope that you provide is, is so strong and so beautiful and so much better than anything this world has to offer. And so I pray that you would, you would call us away from the cesspool of sin and toward the pure fountain of your holiness. Father, would you convict us right now if we are chasing after things in our lives that that are not of you, that do not reflect your beauty, that do not reflect your goodness. And I pray that we would turn in faith and draw near to you and love how holy you are. Lord, do a work in our hearts this week. Let this be our prayer. O great God of highest heaven, occupy our lowly hearts, own it all, and reign supreme. Conquer every rebel power. Let's sing this together. Why don't you stand with us? Thank you for listening to Oak Hill Fellowship Church. Stay connected with us by finding us on social media or by joining us Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. Until then, remember that you are loved.